Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to podcast swag, giveaways, private grief hangouts, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Grief Growers, I am also setting sail on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise to join me and a boatload of other grieving hearts as we travel to Haiti, Jamaica, and Mexico. Go to www.comingbackcruise.com where you can sign up to receive more information on the cruise's sail dates, grief presenters, and onboard activities. I'll see you on the open seas. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm talking to the founder of Soaring Spirits International, Michelle Neff Fernandez, who lost her husband suddenly when he was hit by a car. Also on the show today, I'm embracing joy in my life again, almost five years after my mom's death, and talking about what it means to be happy after loss. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I am so excited to let you know this week that another grief grower has signed up to come on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise. Thank you so, so much, Eileen, and your husband for joining us in March of 2019. As you can see, grief grower space is filling up super fast on the Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. And once we have met capacity for the Bereavement Cruise, we cannot take any more people. So if a week-long cruise with lots of options for dealing with your grief, including a workshop with yours truly, resonates with you, please apply to receive more information at www.comingbackcruise.com or by clicking the announcement bar at the top of the homepage on my website at shelbyforsythia.com. And of course, as always, you can find both of these links in the show notes. I cannot wait to see you on board. So grief growers, Something is happening to me. I am, for lack of better phrasing, recognizing or catching on to the idea that I am happy. I am happy in this moment and in my days lately. And the concept of it is totally blowing my mind. If you've seen my Facebook and my Instagram posts, you know that I've been waking up this week and for the past couple of weeks overflowing with joy. Just this past weekend, I went into my job serving tables at a restaurant here in Chicago and was flooded with overwhelming love and appreciation for my life and everyone that I work with and the fact that I get to do this. I get to live this life with these people in this place. Isn't this so cool? I'm on the phone with friends and family and and almost in tears lately, just overwhelmed because they are so incredible. And I love having them in my life. There's this episode of the Golden Girls that's coming to mind uh, called Vacation, where Dorothy and Rose and Blanche get stranded on a desert island. And Rose is so overwhelmed with joy to be with her friends. She says she just has to let it out and starts singing the 1971 Coca-Cola jingle from the hilltop called I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing in Perfect Harmony. And she just belts it out at the top of her lungs. And that's kind of, that's like how I'm walking around right now. That's exactly how I feel right now. And this emotion, this, this uh, state is coming as a total surprise to me, grief growers. It's like happiness, like joy, like contentment, like peace have all just whoop, snuck up on me. 
to the point where I didn't recognize it as at first. I, I, I didn't recognize what I was looking at or feeling. And I didn't really trust it either. I was like, oh, this is good, but I don't know how long, you know, this will last. I, I would get glimpses of happiness. I haven't been miserable, you know, for the past five years since my mom died, but I don't know that I trusted happiness to be real. And and pieces of me still don't. And of course, grief has taught me that this, how I feel right now, is not the permanent state of things, that nothing stays the same. I know, of course, in the back of my mind that anything could happen at any second and send me right back down to the pit of despair again. And yet in the face of all of this, of all of this logic, of all these thoughts and all this grief, I'm finding myself recognizing myself lately as really, really happy. And it's sticking. And it's staying. And I'm grateful and overflowing and joyful. And it's incredible. I've had to give myself permission to be this happy. Grief growers, there is sometimes like a soft fear or an uneasiness in being this happy, not just because of the waiting for the other shoe to drop mindset that grief places in us forever, but also because I, I don't see myself as a person who is supposed to be happy. I lost my mom. I almost lost my dad. I lost my first love. I lost my health pretty tragically. I lost my fiance just last year. I mean, I teach grief for a living. Am I a person that's supposed to be happy? I've seen and faced so much tragedy already in my life. Am I allowed to really be happy? I talk about grief every single day of my life. I think about it every hour of my life. Do I have permission to wake up overflowing and enchanted and delighted by life? And this week today, right now, I'm letting myself say yes. Yes, I do. I do have permission to be happy, grief growers, in spite of everything I've gone through and inclusive of what I choose to do with my time for a living. I'm reminding myself that feeling grief does not exclude us from feeling joy, not forever, anyway, unless we tell ourselves that that's the truth and will be the truth for as long as we live. We like block that off for ourselves. We are allowed to be happy after the very worst things possible happen to us. I mean, if you turn it around, happiness has a right to sneak up on us. We have no right to block that out. And I'm also reminding myself too that I can be an effective guide and teacher and friend to all of you, even if I do come up from a place of joy when I speak. Because I remember so strongly what pain and what grief was like. I was there in my own loss. I always have roots to that place. Those are um, steel roots, for lack of better phrasing. You know, roots that will never dissolve or be uprooted or go away. The roots down towards grief are, are permanent. They're memorable. I guess what I want to share here today, grief growers, is that if you're feeling happy, like I am, if it's sneaking up on you or you can see it coming or you know there's an event in the future where you're going to feel joy and pride and delight and enchantment, if it's coming in flashes or if it's sticking around, you are allowed to have it. Grief growers, you are allowed to grip happiness and to feel it in your whole body. You do not have to abide by some invisible rule that because you're grieving, a whole bunch of emotions, including joy and elation and wonder, are off the table. You are allowed to continue working in whatever field you're working in, even if it includes what some people would call the hard stuff, when you are happy. And of course, you are allowed to continue to keep finding ways to make room for more happiness in your life. You are allowed to call it in and summon it. I've been calling it in and summoning it since my mom died. And that is 
totally allowed to want to be happy again and to claim that happiness when it comes to you. Joy, grief growers, heart-centered happiness, a true love of life. You've heard guests talk about it on this show, that that is reality for them now. It is here for me right now, grief growers. It has arrived. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm going to take it while I have it. And I just want you to know that if you're feeling happy now or when you feel happy in the future, you are 1000% allowed to say yes to it. You don't have to say, oh no, I'm sorry. I'm going to show you the door. I cannot feel you right now. I'm grieving. Allow joy. Scratch that. Invite joy to be a part of your grief. Because it is. This level of happiness after loss is exclusively reserved for people like us. For people who grieve. I'm getting chills. This level of happiness after loss is exclusively reserved for people who have lost, for people like us, for grievers. So take it. It's yours. It is yours. I would love grief growers, if you would join me for Facebook Live this week to talk about what it feels like to be happy in the aftermath of loss, whether you're getting glimpses of it or if it's creeping up into full-time happiness. I'm going to be going live on Monday, July 9th at 1 o'clock p.m. Central Time. All you have to do is like my Facebook page, Shelby for Scythia, Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up is my conversation with Michelle Neff-Hernandez, who lost her husband and created the global widows organization, Soaring Spirits International. Michelle Neff-Hernandez is the founder and executive director of Soaring Spirits International, a nonprofit that creates peer support communities for widowed people around the world. Michelle is a lover of family, especially her three kids, books, nature, Labrador retrievers, running, the awesome Australian guy she found on eHarmony, and widowed people from all walks of life. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And I'm so thrilled to be put in touch with you through our um, top of the show, top of the season here on Coming Back, who is Megan Devine, our interviewee, and through so many other people who've actually requested that you come on the show. So just thrilled to have you here. And if you could please start us off with your lost story. Yeah, well, first, let me tell you how much I love what you're doing. And it's an honor to be included on the Coming Back show. So thank you for that. Uh, My story begins on the first day of school, August 31st of 2005. My three kids were heading back to school for their first day. My daughter's first day of high school, my youngest's first day of middle school, and my husband, Philip Hernandez, went out for a bike ride. He always rode on Wednesday afternoons, and so he went out for his regular Wednesday afternoon ride. And about 45 minutes after he left, um, my kitchen phone rang. I was making dinner for the kids and doing all the first day of school paperwork that comes with uh, having just returned from that first day. And I looked, it was right after caller ID was a thing. And so I looked at the caller ID and thought, huh, that's weird. I don't know that number. And I almost didn't answer it. And then I thought, hmm, it's a cell phone number. Maybe I should answer. So I did answer. And it was a woman who was at the side of the road about a mile and a half from my house and said that um, my husband had been hit by a car and that she felt like I should come right away. And so I got the location where he was, which, as I said, was only about a mile and a half away from home, hung up the phone and basically my brain went into, well, if this lady's calling me from the side of the road, for some reason in my head, that meant she hadn't called 911. And and since she didn't need to call 911, that must mean that things were going to be fine. And so I told the kids that um, a friend would come and sit with them shortly, but I had to run over and get Phil because he'd been hit by a car, but probably he had just broken 
uh, some bones and I was going to take him to the hospital. So I got in the car and drove straight to the accident site and quickly became aware that it was much worse than I had imagined and that 911 had already been called. I arrived just shortly before the ambulance and then after being loaded, him being loaded into the ambulance and lucky for me, they also included me and put me in the front seat of the ambulance. I was able to go with him. Um, he died. His heart stopped actually on the way to the, on the way to the emergency room, which was probably only about three miles from where we were. Um, and then he was pronounced dead about half an hour later. So that began the journey of trying to figure out how to live my life as a widowed person and how to create a meaningful life after the one that I had planned was altered beyond repair. Oh my God, of course. And I can't imagine, well, I hate the phrase I can't imagine because then it's like, I can never fathom what loss like yours is like. And I hate when, when people say that to grievers, but the, the suddenness of this is, as I've said in previous podcasts, it's a life I have not lived is, is probably the best way that I can phrase that. And I guess my, my first question for you is how do you, or how did you go back home and explain to your kids and your family? You're like, it's not a broken bone. I will tell you that it was, uh, that's one of the portions of the story that is, is still the hardest you know, to, to recall, which is just that I had, you know, I didn't think about what I was saying when I left the house. And I truly believed in that moment that it was possible that he was going to be fine and that I was going to pick him up. Well, those words really echoed in my kids' heads. And so, um, I had, we were a blended family. So I had three stepkids who were adults living out of the house and my three kids who were uh, 14, 13 and 11 living at home. So the first thing that happens after I realize that he has died is the very first thought was I have to tell his kids, like <laughs> I'm going to have to call the kids. And so I wanted his adult children to have the opportunity to get to him at that moment if they, if they wanted. So, um, I had some difficult phone calls to make. So I may, I, I was able to reach one of them and then I was able to reach, um, my brother-in-law who went and found the others. And so then, um, I'm really fortunate. I, you know, I always think it's very funny that I started a community of support for widowed people because in my own widowed experience, I was incredibly well supported by people who could not have done enough for me. So I am one of seven children and every single one of my siblings plus my parents were in my living room that night. Wow! So that's how I went home is that they all came and literally my entire living room was packed with people and we told stories about Phil. Um, but prior to that, I, I had someone pick up the kids because once, you know, I, I thought I was only going to be gone for a minute. Well, when I was in the ambulance, I'm realizing this is not going to take a minute. So I'm making arrangements for the kids. I'm, I'm in the front seat, literally like having an office phone calls, canceling appointments, like trying to clear my life. Um, and <laughs> I'm laughing, I know, right? but I'm like, it's all of a sudden you're turning into a receptionist yeah. in the front seat of an ambulance. And I'm like, got one ear like back there trying to hear if they're working on him and one and one ear in the front trying to make sure that you know my kids are taken care of that you know everything that needs to happen is happening I had appointments that night I uh, was a personal trainer at that time and I had appointments so people were going to be waiting for me so I was trying to cancel that later they all said to me I can't believe you even called I don't you know I just went into automatic mode like what do you do in that moment okay you clear your schedule right. That's you clear what your I calendar did. you clear <laughs> so, for the rest of the afternoon please clear your calendar real quickly. So um, anyways, I had done that. And so my kids were with friends and, and my parents were coming. And so I asked them if they'd pick up the kids and bring them to me at another friend's house where I was kind of waiting for everyone to gather. And then we were going to go home together. And so my kids are happily playing at their friend's house. You know, they're worried, but I had told them that they broke, he broke his legs. And so when finally they came downstairs from their friend's house and saw grandma and grandpa. My daughter said, I knew things weren't good when grandma and grandpa were there. And so then they, they bring them to me, which was not a very far distance. And, you know, I'm, we're riding home in the backseat of the car after I've told them, I mean, you know, we've got, 
the four of us are packed in the backseat of this car. And one of the kids says to me, mom, but you told me he just broke his legs. And so, you know, like I said, still those words ring because that's really what I thought. But those poor kids were like, but mom, like he can't be dead. You told us he just broke his legs. So, um, yeah, those were really, really, really hard times. And, uh, and it's funny looking back now because when I think the other thing is there's a, there's a matching sentence to, I can't imagine. And that is in my mind, I don't know how I did it. And Mm. so it's funny to think that there's so many times when I feel, when I hear other people's stories, kind of just what you said, like, I can't imagine because I truly can't, I can't imagine what it must've been like for them in that moment. And the pairing sentence to that for me is, I don't know how I did it. There's no answer to the question, like, how did you make it through? I don't know. I just did what came naturally in that moment. And I sat back there with my kids and cried because I had told them that, you know, his his legs were broken and that clearly and actually wasn't even true. So, you know, ultimately we started moving, you know, as forward and back and sideways as we could while we made our way through what was to come. Before we get into like the days, months, years that followed, I want to pause for a second and ask who he was to you. Yeah. Uh, his name is Philip Hernandez, and he was that jokey guy that did crazy things, and you thought, no way, he's not going to do that. Oh, but yes, he is. <laughs> and, uh, so he, living with him was never a dull moment. His favorite thing to do was to scare me. Like So he would hide oh, in no. all these random places and jump out to- and then we, uh, right before he died, we'd remodeled the house. And in the remodel, there was a huge mirror and I could see him now. So his ability to scare me and it was the best. I have this clear memory of the first time. And and my favorite part was looking at him being so delighted that he was about to scare me, but I could see him. And so he's waiting. He's waiting. He's wondering why I'm not coming. Suddenly he looks up in the mirror and realizes I'm looking at him and is crushed that his opportunity to scare me has been altered by this remodel. Don't put a mirror over there. Uh, he was dedicated and loyal and um, he physically seemed like he could do anything, which also made his death really hard to kind of wrap my head around because if you'd asked me before he died, I would have thought if there was anybody who could survive an accident like his, it would be him. And in fact, um, I later learned that his body made such a significant impact on the car that people that the that the police went back to look again wow. because they couldn't believe it was a person. And um, he just was just athletic and solid and strong and um hilarious and he had you know that kind of thousand watt smile that lights up lights up a room oh i love that for you and it makes me even so much more sorry that he's not physically here yeah yeah there's nothing like that you know what's so funny is that uh in many ways my earliest fears were that i was going to forget and, and I was trying everything, you know, I did everything you can think of to try to make sure I wasn't going to forget. And, um, not long ago, I had the experience of, he used to call his mom on Mother's Day. Well, he called his mom regularly, but he always said the same exact thing when he called her, same greeting every time. And it was Mother's Day. And I, I suddenly remember, I realized like, I can't remember what the greeting is. I don't remember. I don't remember what he said and had like this moment. It's been 13 years since he died. And so this is about last year. So I'd say it's been 12 years and I'm freaking out because see, I knew I was going to forget this thing. And then not long later, I was on a run and I was talking to him and arguing with him. And I thought to myself, okay, well, I guess it's okay that I don't remember exactly what he said to his mom because I'm still arguing with him. He's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Arguing about running of all things. It was hilarious. So, you know, it just, it solidified for me the reality that, you know, the people we love exist in our very selves and that there's no way to forget that you may forget some individual piece of something and you don't know when that piece will come visit you at some random time in the future. So I'm learning to be a little bit more relaxed around the very specific things and welcome the memories that come, you know, like him standing there looking in that mirror, being so mad that his new, his way of uh, adding fun to our lives by jumping out from behind a corner was ruined by the remodel. I'm, I'm noticing a lot of parallels here, not only between your uh, 
widow story and Megan Devine's story, but in our interview, we focused a lot on, you know, what our brains hold on to mm-hmm. about loss and what we forget. And for a big portion of the top of that show, I did kind of like a almost like a monologue about how we do have permission to forget things that we thought we would remember the rest of our lives. So, so yeah, so good on you for having that conversation, but also just continuing to argue with him. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's just further proof that our relationships with our loved ones continue. Yes. After they're gone, they live on. Yes. In our very selves is your, your verbiage. And I love it. Um, Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I kind of want to get into now, you know, the days, months, weeks, and now years following his loss, kind of how your life has unfolded both with your children and yourself as a freestanding woman in the world. I think the first question I want to get into, though, is, you know, a child of seven and both your parents showed up and all these friends and things surrounding you. Um, Was it overwhelming? Did you feel immensely supported? Did you feel like you needed space to breathe, I guess all of a sudden loss puts a bunch of people in our house that aren't normally there. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes it's really, really, uh, it's a grateful experience. And sometimes it's like, all right, everybody, please go home. I just want to break down. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the answer is, is yes and no. So I did feel extremely well supported and I'll, and I'll tell you one of the first things, the very first things that happened, we sit in the living room and we have our time together and then I've got to get those kids to bed somehow. And so I, I do all of the comforting things I can do for the kids. I finally get them all settled. It's probably past midnight. Now the accident happened about five thirty in the afternoon. And so I, I come out and my mom is standing outside my room and I don't, I think I must have said it at some point. I, just, I still don't know how she knew exactly. I know I told her, but I don't remember when. But whenever Phil and I were rarely apart, we just happened to have the kind of careers and lifestyle where we were together a lot. And so whenever we were apart, whichever one of us was home alone would pile the pillows on the side of the bed of the person who was missing. And so um, it was just this sort of silly tradition that we had. And so I, I walk into my room and... Um, my mom had piled the pillows up in his place. And so um, I just remember that so clearly, like seeing the pillows there and thinking, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> I'm not sure I can do this. And, and then my sister saying to me, would you like me to, you know, would you like me to sleep with you? And I was like, absolutely not. I didn't want anybody in that bed. Nobody, the pillows, fine, no people. So it was just, it was, interesting that so early on there were some things that were really clear to me while other things were super hazy but one of the clearest moments I had was nobody in my bed and so it became kind of a thing where they were like no 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 she doesn't want anyone to sleep with her (laughs) (laughs) I like it and I'm laughing but the whole time you said that oh my gosh I've got chills and like there's tears in my eyes because it's such it's such a gesture to remember what people pick up on yeah. And just do for you without speaking. And at the same time, this is also a really beautiful example of people saying not, let me know how I can help you, mm-hmm. but asking what you want. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to sleep in the bed with mm-hmm. you? Do you want me to perform this action? And then you get the freedom to say yes or no, or I'd like it with a twist or, yeah, I- you know, how, however it's different for you. And that is so often what helps grievers more than let me know how I can help. Cause then you have to figure out something for them to do. And then you're like, I don't know if I can ask this of you and, and all these right. other things. So nod to your intuitive family. They, and in, like I said, they were incredible. And so yeah, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> so you can imagine yes. there were actually times where it was like, okay, this is too much. And, and, but I did always feel very free to say so. And, and at some point, you know, so they basically stay, I, they stayed for almost a month. Not all of them at once, obviously, but the whole family stayed overnight and then they started making plans. I mean, then we had a funeral to plan, right? So we did the whole funeral thing and most of them stayed for that whole piece. And then they started taking turns. One stayed a week, another stayed a week, another stayed a week. And by the time we got to the fourth week, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to learn how to do this. And so it's time. It's time for me to be alone. And um I think that in my new life, I've had this opportunity to share these experiences with people who are not grieving. And I value that so much because what I tell them is be yourself 
and do something practical that makes sense and that doesn't cross any borders. So if you walk past a griever's house and their lawn is not mowed and it hasn't been mowed for six weeks, don't go knocking on the door and say, can I mow your lawn? Just mow the lawn. And they're going to come out and feel like a Christmas miracle just happened because that thing they've been looking at thinking, oh my God, how am I ever going to get that done is done. Send a gift card in the mail for a dinner that they can just pick up instead of coming by with food, which is appreciated, but your freezer gets really, really full. And my kids still won't eat lasagna. And it's been 13 years. <laughs> and it's so true. I mean, some of the things that stand out to me the most, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast before, but um, were were gestures from people I didn't expect to get them from. Um, but also, yeah, the, the practical things like gift cards, like for groceries or for for again, yeah. dinner that we can just pick up that we'll actually eat, not like the 18th chicken casserole that's been jammed into our freezer. Yeah. Um, right. Something with a vegetable in it because people tend to bring cake. I'm like, why are you bringing cake when people die? I don't yeah. understand. No we had so no much sugar, sugar and so many casseroles in our house. Um, yeah. and-, and that's the other part of it that's so hard, I think, is that it's done with love and care, you know, and that you feel then now obligated because this person has made this gesture. And so I, if people can do things that are, that are practical and non-invasive, you know, and my next door neighbor said we were scheduled to carpool. We were, we had started that very day. So we were scheduled to carpool for that year. And she walked into my house. I didn't even know her very well. We, we literally got to know each other through our, through this experience, but she walked into my house and she said, I just want you to know that I am driving carpool from now until forever. And that's the end of the story both ways. And then I was like, I mean, you know, I'm stunned still. I can't speak kind of. And she, and I just knew, and, and then she just started and then she drip. I had to talk her out of it three months later. I was like, okay, Carrie, you have been driving for three months. I think I can drive now. <laughs> But it was so, it was like you said, someone who I wasn't expecting. We were not good friends. We were neighbors and we were neighborly, but we were not good friends. And through my experience of her supporting me in such practical ways consistently after that even, um, we become very dear friends. Can we talk about the evolution of friendship after loss? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Isn't it a crazy thing? Oh, it's, I mean... I dropped off the face of the planet with so many people, but then at the same time, the the people that rush in, I'm like, oh, I didn't expect to see you here. Was kind of you know my experience with that. Also, did you have anybody who just like came and stood in your living room and stared at you, and then you were kind of like, okay, am I supposed to offer tea or something? Like I had people who just came and stood and I was like okay I really don't have energy right now for this and I and you're in such an interesting position because I appreciate that you're willing but I I think we can be done now thanks for stopping by (laughs) I had some really interesting experiences but I I think what I what I appreciated were the people who who could just let me be whatever I was in that moment. And sometimes that was super sad. And sometimes that was, I used to talk my, you know, you must've heard this question a million times. Mm -hmm. How are you? And so one of my sisters was calling every day and every day she'd say, how are you? And, and after, I don't know, maybe only a couple weeks of this, I said, you have to stop asking me that question. I can't, I appreciate you calling me every day, but I cannot answer that question every day. And so I said, "You." we came up with this phrase, is it a medium day or a horrible day? Oh, <laughs> that was the question. That's a new one for me. Can you get into what that means for you? Yeah. So if I, if I was having a medium day, then it was one of the ones that wasn't as super sad, or I felt like I had some sort of, you know, moment where I felt like, okay, maybe I can do this. And if it was a horrible day, then I would just say it's a horrible day. And that could mean any who knows what thing. But it really, it made such a difference because she could still call me every day. She could still get an update every day, but I didn't have to answer how are you every day with her because of course other people were asking the same question. And so 
it really, it, it reframed things for me in a way that was uh, both sometimes hilariously funny and also relief. It was a relief not to have to answer one more person ask me how I was. You know, what's funny and is coming to mind uh, with the phrasing of that question is kind of hearkening back to how our brains operate in grief. And there's a lot of studies uh, with kids and with toddlers, especially in how their brains operate, where you can't ask them an open-ended question. You have to give them would you like door number one or door number two in terms of choices? And it's interesting, not necessarily that we revert back to that in grief, but I think that so much comes up when we say, how are you? It's like, we just stare into the distance and I'm like, I cannot possibly put all the emotions I'm feeling into your hands right now. Cause I don't even know all what I'm feeling. But if you ask me if I'm feeling a or feeling B, Oh, I can definitely point to one that resonates more. And yeah, just how the brain uh, operates in the midst of grief has always been fascinating to me. Me too. And also, you know, how, how instinctual it really is and, and that we often fight the instinct because it doesn't feel, you know, because sometimes it's too honest or it's too, it's too frank, you know, people are. And so the complication of how are you is also partly based on who's asking. So you've got not only the, can I possibly put into words what I'm feeling right now? There's also the other layer of, would I even tell you the person who's, are you privy to this information? If I were able to put it into, yeah, if I were able to put it into words. And I think because our boundaries, and this is one of the ways that I think friendships are so, so impacted because our boundaries are so different in grief it sometimes feels like you have to drop them all in order to let in enough people to hold you up during this time. And then suddenly you're like, wow, there's all these people in my space (laughs) and how, and, and there's varying degrees of whether they can be in your space, they want to be in your space, or if they just want to be able to tell you how to do it. And if you're not willing to do it their way, then you're probably doing it the wrong way. And I think that's where friendships can go afoul if they can't be in the process and be able to just be while the process around them evolves Um, for the griever, you know, and of course you're not dealing with just one griever, right? When in my circumstance, my family was dealing with me primarily, but then my kids and, you know, they're watching my kids watch me. They, you know, I couldn't go five feet without one of them being attached to my, literally attached to me somehow because they were so afraid that if Phil of all people, could be killed, what was that going to mean, you know, for their mom, I was suddenly mortal. And, and that was really hard for them. And, and then, as a consequence of that, of course, for my family as well. I'm writing this down the notion that mom is suddenly mortal. And that's, that's a thing I I talked about um, grief in developmental stages uh, for kids in season two Mm -hmm. of coming back. And it's so vital, especially for kids who are below high school age to know that, mm-hmm. you know, they are safe. Mom's not going to die too anytime soon that she knows of, you know, things of that nature. But if it could happen right. to one, it could happen to the other. So the pieces get put together for them very, very quickly. Um, I'm curious because you are a parent kind of what you told your kids about the death of your husband and kind of, if you continue to reveal details over time or if you gave it to him all at once or kind of how, how they understand what happened to him and what happened to your family. Well, and I really, it's been so interesting, you know, I guess that's an, a word to use, but it has been interesting to see, to witness the evolution for my kids specifically, because, and because as an adult, you understand grief, you know, mostly all at once. You know, it, it's a big train and it's coming and you see it and suddenly it, in, while there are layers of what will happen in terms of your understanding, you get the concept really quick. For kids, it was so amazing because my kids were just about to be teenagers, right? So in addition to the tumult of the teenage years themselves, there was the additional grief, but then there was the understanding that kept evolving. And so I'd find myself years later thinking to myself, okay, is this teenage behavior or is this grief hmm. behavior? And is there is there a difference? Because this is really, really hard. Um, but as an example, my daughter, when my husband died, was 14. She was uh, 17 years old when a friend of hers, not a close friend, but an acquaintance of hers at school died in a swimming accident. 
and they had a local walk for in support of, um, I can't remember. It was, I think it was water safety. And so she said, mom, could we go? Of course. So we went, I checked in on her many times. The trail where they had the walk was the trail that had Phil was going to the day he died. So she and I, and actually, I think we all went, actually, we all did the walk. We came back. I check in with her. She's fine. Two weeks later, she comes home. She's really late for curfew. So, you know, I think her curfew was probably midnight and I'm looking at my watch and it's 1210 and I was a stickler for being on time for curfew. So I'm, I'm sending her messages. Where are you? No answer. I don't get a response until 1230. She's 30 minutes late for curfew, which in my world was a lot. And, uh, she doesn't, she answers me and says she's on her way. I don't see her until 1245. So I'm standing on the porch. Coming ready. for you. Like, okay, you're 45 <laughs> minutes late Coming for curfew. For that is right. Mom is on the porch, hands on hip. We are ready to get this thing done. She gets out of her car, runs into my arms crying. And I'm like, okay, what happened? Like, okay, now something really bad's happened. I am all about like, what is happening in your life? Did something bad happen? Did you get hurt? And she says, I miss him. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So it's grief. And it had been two weeks delayed from the time that she had gone to the trail, stood up for her friend, did what she felt like she could do. And emotionally, it didn't hit her until she's 45 minutes late for curfew. She had sat in the car with her friend crying about how much she missed Will. So... First of all, talk about humbling, (laughs) total change of direction. But that's the thing about parenting and grief is that you don't know when a realization is coming for them. And, and sometimes they're not able to give it words right away. And so it can come out in behavior. It can come out in what looks like avoidance and it can come out in actual avoidance. It's just, and because as a as an adult, you've processed for three years. So my processing is three years old. And for her in that moment, her processing was brand new all over again. And so as a parent, you get tossed back and forth between the minute it happened to the where you are today to the minute it happened based on their understanding. And so it's been really eye-opening to recognize the brain function of children while witnessing it through this grief experience really. Um, and I didn't answer your question. I did tell them, I mean, I didn't have a lot of details about the accident except for the, the literal facts of what happened initially. We didn't end up really finding out more about it for years, but, um, I did tell them, you know, that he had been hit by a car. It was really very, for me, and I've heard so many other stories that were way more complicated. Uh, it was very clear. And I think actually, in some ways, it made them feel a little bit more safe because it appeared to them that it was specifically related to bike riding. But I can tell you that teaching the three of them to drive was really hard because where are you doing while you're driving? You're avoiding cyclists. And you could see in each one of them, their anxiety levels change whenever they were on the road near a bike. That's so incredible that I didn't even think of that as a factor. Oh my gosh. Oh, it was, I mean, it was so clear for each one of them and they're all of course their own personality. So they handled it differently, but every single one of them had like a, Oh my God, there's a bike moment. Like that's a bike mom. That's a bike. It's a bike. I'm like, I know. So, you know, and, and we also did have that conversation about driving and you know what the flip side of an accident is, you know, what the flip side of an attention looks like. So we've been really honest about it and we've talked a lot about it. And we did really from the beginning, I think that was just sort of our family dynamic at the time and continues to be. So for us, it wasn't different and, and it was super helpful. I think being able to talk about it, I I think the harder part for them actually was witnessing my grief and not being sure how long it would last or if, if the mom they knew before was coming back. I think that was probably equally scary for them. So who is the mom and I suppose the freestanding woman as well? Who, who is that now? You know, I, early in my grief experience, I realized how really grateful I was. And I was floored by that reality 
that I felt so grateful. The last thing I would have thought I felt after my husband died was grateful. But I had so many people do amazing things and be so kind to us that I continually felt grateful to have been married to him, to have had the opportunity to to be a part of his life, for him to be a part of mine and my kids. And so I sort of took that nugget of gratitude and tried to really nurture it. And I don't mean that in a flip way. I know that it's so sometimes just cliche to say, you know, I was so grateful, but it really was a deep, deep level of gratitude, which also was humbling. And I am not a person who likes to ask for help. And I found myself constantly in need of something. I had three kids at three different schools. And so there was just no way I could possibly be in all places at once. And so I learned how to ask for help. I learned how to be grateful for this very moment and mean it. I think I would have said I was grateful for it before, but I think that the depth of grief adds that element. I think... In this time now, I'm really more aware of letting things not be 100% perfect. I'm a perfectionist at heart. I always tell people I love perfection. It's so pretty. It's very um, pretty. But I've, I've had to learn to let go of it and to realize that the mess is important in a way that I wouldn't have given it credit for before. And so... I've had the great honor of being a part of many other people's grief experiences and helping them find a way to create a meaningful life for themselves after experiencing the death of the person they thought they were going to spend the rest of their life with. And that's been humbling in ways that I would never have imagined. And so I think today I really am able to take what grief has taught me and make the world a better place in some ways. And and then also recognize that the most important place I can make the world better is in my own home with the people I love. I, I'm curious now to know if you could pinpoint something that helped you come back, what is that for you? So my youngest was 11 when Bill died and he was a, in a voracious reader. And so about two weeks after, was it two weeks? Know, a few weeks after he died, um, Joshua is his name, was having a hard time sleeping. And so he'd had a really bad night. And I thought, you know what? You're staying home from school. It's just going to be me and you today. So he stayed home from school and I took him to the bookstore because it was retail therapy. <laughs> so how many books can we find? So we went to the bookstore and um, as I walked in the door, so Phil died on August 31st. So September 11th was right around the corner. And... Um, I walked into the bookstore doors and, and right on the table that, you know, shows you the newest releases was a book called A Widow's Walk. And, uh, it's written by Marion Fontana and she is one of the surviving spouses of, um, a firefighter who died in 9-11. So I walk in the doors and I see this book says A Widow's Walk and I walk past it like, yeah, no way. That's not me. So I walk past it and I go with Joshua to his, uh, to the kids area and he's, you know, looking at books and, you know, looking peaceful. And I thought, all right, I'm going to leave you right there for a minute. And I thought, geez, should I pick up that book? Like, is that for real? So I just decided, well, maybe I just need to, maybe I just need to do it. So I buy the book. I, you know, get home. So every night, right, I've got the kids settled down. I'm home alone. So I settled in with this book and I suddenly realized people live through this. Like people actually survive. And what I loved about A Widow's Walk is that Marianne Fontana was so real. So she talks about this. Uh, she talks about going into the bathroom and looking around and like wanting to pull out her hair and then seeing his toothbrush there and, and thinking it would be kind of like kissing him if I brush my teeth with his toothbrush. And so she starts brushing her teeth with this toothbrush. I'm reading this in bed. I'm crying and laughing at the same time because I'm thinking, that means I'm not completely crazy. <laughs> You're I'm not that, insane. Well, she is completely crazy too. And we could be crazy <laughs> together. And so um, 
her, her words were the first thing that made me think, you know what I need? I need other widowed people. Because as I said, I was so well supported. I had an amazing support system, but I still didn't feel like they could understand because how could they? And so I needed some, I just, that's when I knew, I know what I need. I need other widowed people because they get this. This lady gets me. I don't even know her. This lady totally gets me. And so it was the first moment of like, okay, that's what you've got to do. You've got to go find other widowed people. And I really believe that's what set me on the journey of, of landing me where I am today. Um, and a fun part of that story is that I, I will confess now, and now it's going to be public on a podcast, but I stalked the heck out of Marianne Fontana. I tried <laughs> everything to try to get her because I really wanted her to come to one of our conferences. And so I'm stalking, stalking, stalking. I left a message everywhere. I sent packages. I tried to look up her personal, her personal address, which if I think of all the things I did now, I'm like, creepy stalker girl. She's never going to answer. <laughs> Um, but lucky for me, she did eventually answer me and, um, she did come to one of our conferences and, and since then we've become dear friends. And so, I mean, what a crazy thing, right? It's, that was the one book I walked in and it was calling to me. So that's something that, uh, a podcast has afforded me though. I'm like, oh, now I have an excuse to talk to all the people I've stalked <laughs> about grief. <laughs> I want to go on the podcast. That's I'm great. like, hey. <laughs> I had no legit reason, none. I was trying really hard and I was planning a conference that had never been held before and I couldn't pay her. So it was no good all around. And lucky for me, she decided that I wasn't crazy stalker person. It just makes me laugh thinking of what I did to try to get a hold of her. Um, and like I said, so grateful we finally did get to connect and, and now I can call her my friend. Isn't that funny how people's words resonate with us though? Or like, I know you already, so why don't you just show up? <laughs> Absolutely. I um, mean, and it just was it was it was incredible though, and it really was the thing. It was, I knew then I need a community. And I don't know that I would have sought it had I not immediately connected with her words in that way. I don't know. It was something about her that made her feel to me like a person who I would be friends with. And I think that also spoke to me. So, you know, it, so then I did what's logical. I stopped her. <laughs> I'm interested now in talking about how, um, this resource, finding her book, finding your other widowed people led mm -hmm. to the development of soaring spirits international, which is the organization that Megan divine told us about when she came on, uh, at the beginning of this season, just kind of how that, how your grief grew bigger than you. So I, the very first thing I thought, I think after reading Marion's book was like, okay, if I find other widow people, I can ask them all my questions. I can ask them how long I'm supposed to wear my wedding ring, what I'm supposed to do with his shoes. He had more shoes than I did. What am I, am I, do I keep all these pictures up? Do I put more pictures up? Do people wear black? How can you be the best widow possible? These are all the questions that I wanted to answer. And so my first iteration was I was going to go and interview other widowed people and I was going to write a book um, that included this various, this huge variance of answers to those questions. So I wrote 50 questions and I started just advertising to my friends and family. Guess what? I'm going to write a book. This is four months, by the way. I've been widowed four months. I know they were all thinking, what is she doing? But she said, we, we're trying to support her. So we'll just, have, we'll just do what she's telling us. So I said, well, if you think of anybody who's widowed and they wouldn't mind talking to me, that would be great. So I spent a year interviewing other widows. I did probably about a, an interview every other week. I traveled, ended up traveling the country on weekends because I still had to work and I had kids. So my parents or my, or my sisters would come and babysit. I would go to wherever I was going. I would sleep on people's couches, um, to be able to find other widow people. And so, I was an in-home personal trainer at the time, and I realized that taught me what it's like to be in people's space and to be able to understand them from the point of view of in their environment. So I wanted all my interviews to be done at their houses. So all the ones who said they would do it I ended up doing 30 interviews over a year time. And at the end of the year, having finished all the interviews, I started compiling the information and I thought, you know, this is something bigger than maybe just a book, I think it's, wouldn't it be cool if this, if Elaine and Mary could meet and wouldn't it be cool if Christine and Joy have such a similar story? 
And then I thought, well, maybe it's just any widowed person. Maybe they could come to an event that's made just for widowed people. What would, what would happen? And I thought what would happen would be what happened to me every time I knocked on someone else's door, which was I felt understood. Even if our s- stories were so completely different that I didn't think it was possible that we could connect, we found each other sometimes finishing sentences that the other began. And that power, that connection was where I found my most intense feeling of comfort and understanding and where I began really being able to see a way forward. And so that sense of let's have this event led to, I guess I'd have to have a nonprofit if I did that. (laughs) And having had no experience with that at all, I still thought it was a really good idea. And um, so I started Soaring Spirits with the intention and and still today, our, our goal is to connect widowed people with each other. We provide peer support in order to be able to offer that sense of understanding and comfort that I felt in the presence of other widowed people to as many widowed people as possible. Oh, that's so phenomenal. And already looking on your website, I'm seeing like runs that you do together, looks like support groups that happen. And then you said something about a conference as well. So this just seems to have spread out beyond you. Absolutely. And I really, that's my definition of success for this organization is that it's much more than me and that what we offer is a space for any widowed person anywhere in the world. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a perfect fit. You don't have to even go to the website and think, Oh, I want to be a part of that. You just get to go to the website and go, look, I found other widowed people. I was so desperate to find other widowed people. I didn't know where to look. And so even for me, it's a win if somebody just looks at it and goes, wow, there's a lot of widowed people there. That means you're not the only one. That means you're not floating in this pool all by yourself. It's like, look, they're all here. Yeah. And even if all you need to do is look, you know, and go, wow, look at all those widowed people. I wanted that so badly. I badly wanted to know where they were and where do they gather and how do I find them? And if I wanted to ask a question of a widowed person, where could I do that? And so... Um, that's, that's what we do. We offer that opportunity. And I feel that it's a good fit with whatever anyone else might do. They can have a a personal therapist, they can have a support group, they can have other groups they meet with really stories is just about having the sense of community, being able to touch and feel and be embraced by a community. Because death doesn't discriminate, like, we are the most diverse group of people in the world because death happens to literally everyone. And so it's really made it possible for us to create a diverse community that can wrap their arms around any person who's experienced the death of someone they thought they were going to spend the rest of their life with. And in addition to that, the events allow me to meet amazing people like Megan Devine and be able to offer resources to widowed people that I think they may find valuable that were made by another widowed person. So these these resources were created by a widowed person for other grieving people or specifically for other widowed people. And the power of that is astonishing. And why the name? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, Soaring Spirits International, um, one of the early interviews that I did when I was interviewing was with my brother-in-law's cousin. And it turns out we have the same name. We're the same age. We both had kids and our husbands died within two months of each other. Holy crap. Right? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, She is my best friend. We've become, you know, inseparable over all these years. We've been building our lives together for 13 years. And um, her and I were driving home from visiting her husband's grave. And we were talking about you know, what else this book might be besides what I was imagining. And we were talking about the event that I really had. It was like formed in my mind. It existed in uh, in whole. It, it's just amazing to think of it now, but it really did. I knew exactly what it looked like. I could see it. I could touch it. I knew what I wanted. So we were writing down some notes about it. And we're like, well, what are we going to call the organization? And we wanted to reference both the fact that the spirits of our loved ones are soaring now and also that our spirits could soar, that it was possible and I didn't, I wanted it to be, feel like it was uplifting. So that's how we came up with Soaring Spirits. It actually was named the Lost Foundation, Soaring Spirits Lost Foundation initially. Um, but when we went global, um, international seemed like a better fit. So we changed our name a few years ago. 
And then um, our event is called Camp Widow. And people often ask me how in the heck I came up with that. The first one we did was called the National Conference on Widowhood because I wanted it to sound serious and like people could take it seriously and not be worried about uh, getting scammed or something. Sure. And uh, then, I, of course, they all told me it was awful. Like, that's an awful name. You need something else. So uh, we had a 5K. As you mentioned, there's running involved. We had a 5K at the end of that first conference. And I don't know why I had a whistle on, but I had a whistle and a clipboard. I had like the full on camp counselor outfit going on. And I was counting people because we, we bust everyone. So obviously I didn't want to leave anyone behind. So I'm counting people. And one of the ladies said, well, I went to camp or my daughter went to camp and I went to camp too. <laughs> and someone else said, what camp did you go to? And she goes, camp widow. And I was like, okay, there you have it. So here we are, uh, 10 years and 21 camp widows later. So how can people find you to either get involved with Camp Widow, to look at and be able to point to all the other widowed people in the world, and uh, maybe to get their hands on some resources or get in touch with you? I still love that idea that they can look at all the other widowed people. It makes me so happy. Uh, SoaringSpirits.org is our website, and all of the programs we offer are available there under How We Help. And Camp Widow does actually have its own website, but you can get to it from the Soaring Spirits website. The Camp Widow website, the Camp Widow event is is really large and has a lot of moving parts. So it has its own space on campwidow.org. Um, and, and what I like to tell people is that our goal is to help you get connected. And we are here to serve the widowed community. And so we, we encourage people to reach out, ask any question you have to ask. If you don't find what you're looking for, please don't hesitate. There's phone numbers on the website. Um, I will give it. It's 877-671-4071. And we have a phone number, um, though, you know, it's harder to get a hold of anyone on the phone these days. But sometimes you just need to talk to a person and know yeah. that it's real. And, and so um, we, de- we definitely do that. We talk to people all the time and we are not we don't offer therapy we don't offer support groups we offer community consistently and to be able to find a space for your story to find a place to honor your loved one to honor your loved one to be able to speak about them openly and and sometimes with laughter and sometimes with tears and either or both are fine um that's that's really what we want people to have is that sense of it and so everything we offer we do both online and in-person programming, and all of that's available on the Soaring Spirits website. Um, again, that's soaringspirits.org. That's so lovely, and I can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing your story. But beyond that, you know, going deep into how our brains process grief, how teenagers process grief, and um, and how we all become different people after our losses. So, so yeah, th- thank you for coming on the show. Oh my gosh, it was such a pleasure. I I feel like we could be friends. Watch out, I might start stalking you. Wait for that. I already started stalking you. <laughs> okay, good. Well, we're in it together. I do, I would like to just close with one thought, which is that it's so easy to assume that we're not going to be, that not the same person is means a lesser person. And I think my greatest lesson so far in this experience has been that me being different doesn't mean that I'm less than I was before. And it means that everything I was is enmeshed with who I am now. And I've evolved to a new stage that includes knowing what it's like to grieve someone I didn't think I could live without. That was perfectly said. And you're right. Grief is its own form of leveling up. Mm -hmm. It is. We don't usually want to hear it, but it's so true. It's so true. We have to find it out for ourselves for the most part. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's very wise. Well, Shelby, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on Coming Back, and I will look forward to hearing future episodes. Oh, thank you so much, and I'm so thrilled to just have your voice, have your story here, and these resources for all of our grief growers who are listening as well. Absolutely. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to Michelle Neff Hernandez for coming on the show this week and sharing your story and work with Soaring Spirits International. Michelle came back by reading the book A Widow's Walk by Marion Fontana and by finding and building a community of other widowed people that reaches across the world. 
You can find a link to Soaring Spirits International and Camp Widow in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, July 9th at 1 o'clock Central Time, and we'll talk about giving ourselves permission to feel happy in the aftermath of loss. Come sail with me and so many now fellow grief growers on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise by requesting more information at comingbackcruise.com. If this show has changed the way you see grief and loss, go to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia, where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and get some very cool podcast rewards for doing so. If you liked what you heard today, you can also support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or by telling a friend about coming back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always and forever to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, my beautiful grief growers, it was incredible sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.